You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. The book of Isaiah, written between 700 and 680 B.C., 700 and 680 B.C., covers a time period of 700 B.C. to 33 A.D. because it is a book of prophecy. And uh, all of it covers up until uh, the end of Jesus' life. The author is Isaiah, and you would be amazed at all of the people that argue that Isaiah was not the author of Isaiah, or that he was only the author of the first 39 books or chapters and not the author of the last 27. I mean, it's absolutely a mess. Um, people get into a lot of trouble when they start educating themselves out of common sense. The verse, first verse, the vision of Isaiah, okay, so that is very simple. And then Jesus, when you read about Jesus and Paul and uh, all these New, Testaments when, uh, New Testament characters, when they start quoting the entirety of the book of Isaiah, uh, they say, as it is written by the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah was certainly the author. There was no time to argue about anything else. The audience, who did Isaiah write to? Now, really, in our Through the Bible series, we haven't necessarily had to emphasize this too much. We did a little bit in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, a little bit in Ezra and Nehemiah, because we needed to know that the audience was the group of Israelites that had returned from the exile. But now that we're coming into the prophets, it's very important to remember who is this being written to. Now, obviously, we know it's written to all mankind. It's written for our example and all scripture is profitable. But originally, who was it written to? And it was originally written to the split kingdoms of Israel and Judah, but mainly it was written to Judah. Every now and then, Israel kind of sneaks in, but mainly Isaiah and his entire ministry was in the southern kingdom of Judah. He wrote to that kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. Some have said this, as Shakespeare is to literature, and Beethoven is to music, and Spurgeon is to preaching, so is Isaiah to prophecy. Now, we don't know much about Isaiah as a person, but uh, some different things can be deduced from his writings and even what historians say about him. And it's important to know the man. When you know the man just a little bit more, you'll understand his message just a little bit more. Now, there are 66 books or chapters in the book of Isaiah. We are not going to get anywhere close to getting through all of those tonight. I was hoping that we would do this in two parts. It's probably going to be three parts. So I don't want us to rush. I want us to get to know this book. I think this is a book among many books that people have always wanted to know. But you read it, and it's so big, and there's so much going on, and it's information overload, and you get to certain points and you're like, oh, I recognize that. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Yeah, I know that one. Or he was bruised for our transgressions. Yeah, I know that part. Or uh, cease to do evil and learn to do well. Yeah, I know that part. We know the contents, but we don't know the context of it all. So we're going to take our time. We're probably going to get through the first 12 chapters uh, tonight. So as you see us coming up to that, you'll know that we're almost done. But let's talk about who Isaiah is as a 
as a person to begin with. Many believe he was a man of high social status, even possible that he was of royal blood and closely related to one of those kings, uh, King Uzziah, in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, and that would explain when King Uzziah dies, uh, that is when Isaiah has one of his greatest visions of the heavenly throne room. Uh, that death, that close family death, must have had a great effect on him. Uh, he was obviously a well-educated man. He had great knowledge of geography. Uh, he had a vast vocabulary. He said things like, I will sweep them with the besom of destruction. And uh, what's a besom? Well, it's something that you sweep with, you know. Uh, and uh, he had a very impressive skill in writing. Now, obviously, we know he wrote under the inspiration of God, but the Holy Spirit used the personality and used the education of the man, and he had, a, he had an incredible ability to write. We know that he was married, and his wife was actually a prophetess. Um, and then he had two sons. Now, just to be mean, I was going to have Brother Rusty read the verses with these two names in them. Uh, one son's name was Sheer Jashub, which meant a remnant shall return. A very, very uh, pictorial name. And the second one was Mahershala's Haspaz. Mahershala Haspaz. Haste the prey, speed the spoil. Another very, very pictorial name, and we'll see that in just a little bit. Now, one thing we do know for sure, we don't know much about where he came from or, or his social status, but one thing we do know for sure is when Isaiah lived. And in order to understand what Isaiah is saying and why he is saying it, we must know when Isaiah is saying it. And as we enter into all these books of prophecy, it's, we must be sure to know the time period of each book. Without knowing when the book was written, it's going to be much more difficult to understand what is being said and why it is being said. Isaiah was active in his ministry under the reigns, in verse 1 we can see, of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That means that his ministry covered a period of at least 60 years. Historians are confident, but they are not certain, that Isaiah lived on into the reign of Manasseh, which is Hezekiah's son. Manasseh was a extremely wicked king, and he did not like Isaiah or his ministry, and he called for Isaiah's execution. He tied Isaiah up with cords and put him into a hollow tree and then commanded for the tree to be sawn in half. Uh, Hebrews 11.37 seems to give an allusion to this when it talks about we don't have time to talk about all these others who died in faith and they stopped the mouths of lions and one of them said they were sawn asunder and many people believe that that is referring to Isaiah. Now by the start of Isaiah's ministry, Israel had already been split into two kingdoms for 200 years, around 200 years. And what I want to do is I want to give you a little history lesson here, and it's very important to understand what is going on. And I'm going to try to give you a little, a little map in your mind. Can you picture the Mediterranean Sea? Okay. Picture the Mediterranean Sea, and right off the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea is the uh, kingdom of Israel to the north and then Judah to the south. Down here you have Egypt. Over here you have the Red Sea. Over here you have the Persian, Persian Gulf and the Fertile Crescent, and then coming up to Russia over in here. Some are looking really lost, and some are looking like they're following. Um, and then, uh, so anyways, that's just picture that right here, right? Okay? So you have Israel 
and you have Judah. Far away to the northeast is a kingdom called Assyria. Assyria is the main power at this time. Nobody messes with Assyria. And the kingdom of Assyria had become so powerful that the northern kingdom of Israel made an alliance with the neighboring country to the north, Syria. Not Assyria, but Syria. So Syria and Israel come into this alliance here. And they even try to get Judah to come into this alliance. But Judah, under the reign of King Ahaz, said, no, we are not going to be a part of that alliance. So then Assyria and, I'm sorry, so then Israel and Syria invade Judah to try to force them into this alliance, into this confederacy. Now, even though God promised King Ahaz and promised the kingdom of Judah that Israel and Syria would not defeat them, Ahaz didn't believe God. And Ahaz actually sent a message to Assyria to enter into an alliance with Assyria to get Assyria to attack Syria and Israel. And Assyria actually does it. They attack Syria and Israel, and they turn away from Judah, but then Assyria keeps going and starts invading Judah. Now, not long after this original Assyrian threat, uh, the next Assyrian king uh, named Shalmaneser, he says, I am going to besiege Samaria, the capital city of Israel, and he besieges it for three years. And after three long, horrible years, the Bible says that the kingdom of Israel is taken off into captivity, into Assyria. Now, because of what Judah did with Assyria, Judah became subservient to that kingdom. Okay? When Hezekiah comes to reign, Hezekiah rebels against Assyria. And he does this by saying, I'm not going to keep up with my end of the alliance. I'm not going to pay my tribute. I'm not going to be subservient to you. And this causes Assyria to then again come and invade Judah to put Judah in its place, if you would. Isaiah tells him, don't worry about him. You just need to trust in the Lord. But instead, Hezekiah reaches down to Egypt and wants to make an alliance with Egypt. And Egypt says, yes, we will do it. We'll send troops as soon as possible, but then they never do. So when Assyria finally shows up, Hezekiah is forced to, to basically pay him off. And Hezekiah has to pay him off with 30 talents of gold and 300 talents of silver. And Judah becomes once again subservient to Assyria. Now, even though Egypt had let them down, Hezekiah is still trying, Judah is still trying to make this alliance with Egypt. And when Assyria hears about this, they're thinking, well, that can't be good if they make an alliance with Egypt, which is about as big as Assyria was. Then we're going to lose our tributary, so we need to come down, and they do come down again. But this time, Hezekiah listens to Isaiah, and he trusts in the Lord. And in one night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are killed by one angel, and they turn away. Unfortunately, though, soon after, Hezekiah then sought an alliance with just a small upcoming kingdom to the east called Babylon. 
And he brings in these ambassadors from Babylon and he shows them all of his kingdom, the armory, the treasury, everything. And Isaiah asks, what have you done? And he said, I've showed them everything. And he says, because you showed them everything, Babylon will one day invade Judah and take your people off into exile. And that's when Hezekiah says those tragic words, it is good as long as peace and truth be in my days. That all happens under Isaiah's ministry. Now, the Babylonian captivity doesn't take place until 100 years after Isaiah passes away, but it comes to pass in exact detail, as Isaiah said, during his ministry. But all of those battles, all those alliances, and all of these moving parts, and we haven't even talked about all the other uh, countries that are active right now, Ethiopia, Philistia, the Philistines, Ammon, Moab, um, Edom, and um, Tyre and Sidon, all these different uh, kingdoms right now who are all trying to ally with each other to basically make sure that Assyria doesn't take them over as well. Okay? Um, all of that happened during Isaiah's 60-year ministry, and knowing what is happening in history is a, is a key to understanding this message of the book here. Okay? So let me get you the outline, just a very basic outline. And there's a, there's a treasure hidden in the outline, and I want to see if you find it. Okay? Part number one is chapters 1 through 39. And it's all about condemnation. Part one, chapters 1 through 39, is all about condemnation. And you can say part 1A is chapters 1 through 12. And that's what we're going to get through tonight, hopefully, which is a condemnation upon Judah and Jerusalem specifically. Part 1B, under the large part 1, is chapter 13 through 23. And this is a condemnation upon the surrounding nations. So you have chapter 1 through 12, condemnation of Judah and Jerusalem specifically. 13 through 23 is condemnation upon the surrounding nations. And then part 1C, chapters 24 through 39, is condemnation upon Israel as a whole. Uh, again, a lot of it is talking to Judah, but it does talk about Israel just as a nation. Okay? That's part 1. 1 through 39, all about condemnation. 1 through 12 is condemnation upon Judah and Jerusalem. 13 through 23 is condemnation upon surrounding nations. And uh, 24 through 39 is condemnation upon Israel as a whole. Now you have part two, which is chapters 40 through 66. Chapter 40 through 66. And that's all about consolation, comfort. And we'll give the, the different parts next week. We won't get into that now. But does anybody see something in that outline that stands out to them? Do you see why Isaiah has been referred to as the Bible in miniature? It has, it has been called the Bible within the Bible. Think about this. As the Bible has 66 books, Isaiah has 66 chapters. As the Old Testament has 39 books, the first part of Isaiah has 39 chapters. As the second part, the New Testament has 27 books. The second part of Isaiah has 27 chapters. The first part of the book, like the Old Testament, focuses on sin and judgment and conviction. 
The second part of the book of Isaiah, like the New Testament, focuses on grace and mercy and comfort. However, the whole book of Isaiah, like the whole book of the Bible, is very clear in pointing out that those who will be comforted must first submit to the conviction. There is no peace, saith the Lord, to the wicked, Isaiah says. If you are ever going to be comforted by the Lord, you must be first convicted by the Lord about your sin. Now, if you still aren't convinced that the Lord's hand is in this. Now, do I believe that all of the chapter divisions and everything are inspired? That's, no, no, that's hard to, that's hard to prove. Uh, the Bible says that what is written is given by inspiration of God. The, the chapter divisions and the verses were all added much, much later. But God's hand is obviously upon his book. And if you are not convinced of that, think about this. The third chapter of the 40th book of our Bible, so Matthew chapter 3, begins with these words, In those days came John the Baptist. The third verse of the 40th chapter of Isaiah says this, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. The prophecy, the Old Testament prophecy of John the Baptist. If you read Matthew chapter 3 verse 3, it quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. Something incredibly special. People have said, if you would like to know your Bible, get to know the book of Isaiah. All the major themes of the Bible, justice, holiness, salvation, mercy, grace, love, joy, disobedience, blessing, cursing, peace, wickedness, the world, the flesh, the devil, heaven, hell, all of it is found in the book of Isaiah. And it's a shame but many people only know bits and pieces of Isaiah. They don't know the whole of Isaiah. We know the contents, but not the context. It's a very quotable book. No Old Testament book was quoted more in the New Testament than Isaiah. Jesus quoted Isaiah more than any other book. Paul quoted Isaiah more than any other book. When Jesus first stood up in the synagogue and preached about himself, he read a portion from Isaiah. But I am under the impression we have never grasped the whole of the message of Isaiah simply because we've never taken the time to do so. It's a large book, and there's a lot of things that are said. It's the second largest book in the Bible. And because we may not know the when of everything, we miss the what and we miss the why. Okay? So let's pray that this study can bring just a little more light where once was darkness. So let's go ahead and get started in chapter 1. We read verse 1 through 9. Isaiah brings attention to the corruption of Judah and Jerusalem. He goes so far as to even compare them to Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we would have had to have been destroyed, just like Sodom and just like Gomorrah. Now, right away, Isaiah brings out what is going to be one of the key themes of his book. And I want you to write down these key themes as I bring them out. Here's one of the key themes, and they're not given in any specific order of priority. But the vast majority of Israel has all become wicked. But God in his mercy has preserved a remnant. That is one of the key themes. Isaiah is going to be talking about this remnant of people who still believe God's word and follow his law, who believe that Isaiah's prophecy is true. 
Uh, but the vast majority of people have, have gone the wrong way. But this remnant, through this remnant of people, God's promise of the messianic king lives on. As long as there is this remnant of people, the Messiah is still coming. God's promise is still true. But again, for the most part, God's people had become just as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the people of Judah and Jerusalem no doubt would have been shocked to hear this sermon from Isaiah. What do you mean comparing us to Sodom and Gomorrah? And they would have started listing off all these things. We still worship at the temple. We still tithe and give burnt offerings. We still pray. We still sing to God. We still keep the Sabbath. We still celebrate uh, all of the holy days and the feast days. We're still a very religious people. And that was true, but God says this in verse, uh, in verse 10. To what purpose? To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? You bring your sacrifices to atone for sins that you have no intention of giving up. So what's the purpose of them? Instead of living right, you just keep asking for forgiveness for living wrong. He says, I have no delight in those sacrifices. Your incense is an abomination unto me. I hate your feasts. I don't hear your prayers. Your hands are full of blood, he says. Look in verse 16. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Stop only getting right on the outside. I want to make you right on the inside. But God says, I, I, I'm not going to force this on you. You need to come and reason with me. In verse 19 and 20, if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. This is your choice. And he goes on through the rest of the chapter to say the reason that your kingdom is so divided right now, the reason that your kingdom is so wicked right now, is because you keep making the wrong choice. And this is also why God has to do something about it. And he tells them through Isaiah, God is going to punish his people for their sins. Now, he is not punishing you to destroy you, Isaiah says. He's punishing you to purify you. And here we find two more key themes of the book. Punishment and purification. So one of the key themes is the remnant. And then we have punishment and purification. This is God's ultimate goal for Jerusalem. And you're going to hear me say that a lot. This is his ultimate goal for Jerusalem. God wants Zion to be a holy city for all of the nations to look to Jerusalem for its light and for a king to rule in justice and righteousness from Jerusalem. That is God's ultimate goal. God wants them to be a holy people. But what Isaiah brings out is in order for you to be holy, God first has to purge away all the people who are refusing to be holy. And this purging is going to come through punishment. He will purge away all who continue to make the wrong choice of rebellion rather than the right choice of obedience. And he says, once the wicked have been purged, then and only then can Jerusalem be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And that teaches us something. God deals with people. God deals with you. When we pray, Lord, deal with the wickedness in the world, God doesn't see wickedness more than he sees wicked people. And when you pray for the Lord, Lord, remove the sin from my life or 
change my circumstances or change my life. Have you noticed that he doesn't deal with your circumstances? He deals with you. Many times he doesn't change your circumstances. He changes you. God deals with people because he can't change your life without changing your heart. And that is what God is addressing here with Isaiah. Now, these themes of God's punishment and purification is echoed all throughout the rest of the book. And in order to describe the punishment that he's going to bring on uh, his people and the nations, he uses the illustration of a fire. Look in verse 25 here, chapter 1, verse 25. And I will turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away thy dross. Look in verse 28. And the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together, and they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Look in verse 31. And the strong shall be as tow, and the maker of it as a spark, and they shall both burn together, and none shall quench them. The wickedness of the earth has forced God to send judgment upon them, and the best way to describe this judgment is by picturing a fire that is going to start spreading throughout all of these nations. And throughout the first part of Isaiah, you're going to see words like burn and consume and purge and fire, fuel, coal, smoke. You're going to see it everywhere. Because whenever God is referring to his punishment, he's talking about this fire that's going to come. And that's important to remember. Put that in your right pocket for two weeks from now, okay? Remember that. Chapter 2 through 5 are all one prophecy that Isaiah gives, quote, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Again, Israel is there, but really only to make the punishment upon Judah even more severe. Because Israel was kind of the older sister Ezekiel refers to uh, the northern kingdom as the older sister, setting a bad example for Judah, the younger sister. But even though Judah is watching Israel and all the punishments that are happening to them, Judah isn't changing. Judah just keeps on going and doing whatever they want to do. So Judah, therefore, is even more to blame because they are able to look at Israel and their bad influence and all the things that are happening to them, and yet they still won't change. So this is upon Judah and Jerusalem, but it does talk about the northern kingdom of Israel every now and then. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Here again we see God's ultimate goal for Jerusalem explained. Look in verse 2. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. Look at verse 4. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. He's talking about that king, that messianic king that is going to come. All nations will come to Zion to hear the word of God. There's going to be a king that will rule with such justice that there will be no more war. People will beat their swords into, into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. You know that's written outside the United Nations. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. It's really a shame they didn't write the first part of the verse. He shall judge among the nations. Here we have the nations in New York trying to judge themselves. How's it going? Only when the perfect king comes will there be peace. And in verse 5, Isaiah invites the house of Jacob. So that's all of Israel. He invites the house of Jacob to, to live that way now. Start making the right choice and trust God's word now. 
But because Israel has so much material wealth and they have so much luxury and prosperity, they see no need to rely on God. He says, your land is filled with money. You all worship idols. You all live in pride and luxury. So God promises, I am going to humble you. You're walking around in pride. I am going to bring you down in what he refers to as the day of the Lord of hosts. And this is referring to the day when God's ultimate goal is completed. Now, here's another key theme, the day of the Lord. Write that down. So what are the key themes that you have? You have one, the remnant. Then you have punishment. Then you have purification. And now you have the day of the Lord. This is the day when all evil will be conquered, the Lord says. A king is going to rule in righteousness. Zion will be holy. All Israel will serve God and all nations will be blessed. And all throughout Isaiah, you're going to see him say these three words. In that day, in that day, when God rules over the world, spoiler alert, when Jesus rules over the world, he says this in, in chapter 2. In that day, there will be no proud people. There will be no idols for people to worship. Everybody is going to look to him. All men will cast their idols aside and worship the true king in that day. However, this certainly wasn't the case now. God's people had shown a pattern of relying on man rather than relying on God. Didn't we hear about all those alliances that they had? And in a cry for repentance, Isaiah pleads for them to stop relying on all the corrupt human leadership in their day because God is about to bring them all down. And in chapter 3, he describes in detail how God is going to humble his people. He says, I am going to remove from Judah the stay and the staff. And it's kind of a poetic description of anything that you lean on instead of me, I'm taking it away. And first of all, he talks about, I am going to remove all of the capable leaders from you. And do you remember when Nebuchadnezzar came? Who was the first group of people that he took? The capable leaders and the young men. He says, I'm going to remove all those people from you. Children are going to rule over you in that day. Jerusalem is going to be such a mess. You could find anybody and say, we want you to be king. And he'll look back at you and say, absolutely not. I want nothing to do with that ruin of a kingdom and that ruin of a city. However, this punishment won't be on everyone. He reminds them, if you're righteous, you'll be fine. But if you're wicked, this is going to come down upon you. He then talks to the women. He talks to the women of Judah and Jerusalem. They found all their worth in what they wore. And God calls them out about it. Uh, they only cared about their appearance. And God says, I'm going to take it all away. He says, your perfume is going to start to stink. Your girdles will have rips in them. Your hair is going to fall out. Your clothes are going to be turned to sackcloth. Your beauty is going to turn into burning. And then on top of all of that, he said, I'm going to kill off the majority of your men. Now think about this. What do men often base their pride upon? Their authority and their ability. And so God says, I'm going to take away all of your leadership, and I'm going to take away all of your mighty men. And what do a lot of ladies base their pride upon? Their appearance and their status. And he begins in chapter 4 by saying, it's going to be so bad for every seven leaders, there's only going to be one man. And there's going to be nobody there to remove your reproach from you. You're all going to be widows. You're all going to have absolutely no status in society. But in that day, he says again, all of the punishments will come to an end. Only 
the, peop the people left in Jerusalem will only be holy. The Lord will have washed away the filth. He will have purged the blood of Jerusalem. He will have purified his city, quote, by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. And my people are going to be the people that they are supposed to be. Now, after informing Israel of this punishment to come, chapter 5 addresses a very important question. Whose fault is all of this? Why is this punishment coming down? Why is God having to send such a fiery judgment upon his people? And in chapter 5, God very clearly says, this is certainly not my fault. And we have the very familiar story, the vision of the vineyard. My beloved hath, hath a, a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he says, what more could have been done to my vineyard? This vineyard had everything going for it. You couldn't have done anything more to that vineyard to ensure that it would yield good grapes. And yet it brought forth wild grapes. And God says, that vineyard is Israel and Judah is the pleasant plant. He says, I have done everything I could to make sure that you turned out right and you still turned out wrong. But do you notice this? He looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth what? wild grapes. A lot of people think that God is going to be okay if we're almost right. No, he wants you to be right. Well, I'm not all the way wrong. Well, you might not be, but you're just almost right. You're close, and close doesn't count in your relationship with the Lord. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. With the Lord, you need to be right. In him is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He gives six woes in the rest of chapter uh, of chapter 5. Woes upon his people for all the things that they're doing. One woe is for their greed and their oppression of the poor. Another is for their excess and their wantonness in life. Another is for their belief that God is not going to do anything about their sin. Another is their belief that they call good evil and they call evil good. Another one he says, woe unto you, you're wise in your own eyes. And then the last one he says, you are dr you're constantly drunk and your drunkenness leads to injustice in the land. Verse 24, Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness. And for the first time in the book, God gives more detail into what this fire of judgment is going to look like. He keeps saying, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to punish you, but he's not saying how. And he finally gives an allusion to it. There's going to come a nation from far away. And they're going to invade the land. No one's going to be able to stop them. And they're going to have absolutely no mercy. And they're going to invade the land and carry the people of Israel away into exile. Chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of a heavenly throne room. God is sitting on the throne high and lifted up, and there's smoke that fills the room. Angels are flying around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when Isaiah realizes just how holy God is, he realizes just how unholy he is. And he says, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among, uh, I dwell among other men of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And it's at this moment, the, one of the angels grabs a live coal, and again, what is one of these pictures that God has brought all throughout his book? This picture of fire. How fire is going to judge his people. Well, the angel goes and grabs a coal from off the altar. A burning coal. And he comes and he places it on the lips of Isaiah. Ouch. Thank goodness it's a vision. 
But amazingly, the fire doesn't kill Isaiah like he thought it would. It doesn't destroy him. He said, whoa, I'm undone. It doesn't destroy him. Instead, it purifies him. The angel says, thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin is purged. And he hears the voice of the Lord calling, whom shall I send and who, who will go for us? And he says, here am I, send me. And God gives Isaiah his earthly mission. Isaiah is to keep preaching about the coming of judgment of God. But because Israel is so rebellious, his preaching is going to have a reverse effect. They're not going to get right. They're actually going to harden their hearts even more. And that tells you, church, God's word always has an effect. It will either bring you closer or it will push you further away. But you cannot remain neutral when you hear God's word preached. And he says, this is going to push them further away. And Isaiah says, how long? How long am I supposed to do this? And he says, it's, you're going to preach until Jerusalem lies waste and his people have been carried off into exile. Nevertheless, there will be a tenth. There will be a remnant of people that I will save. Chapter 7 immediately shows how God's description of Isaiah's ministry comes true. The king of Judah at the time is Ahaz. Now remember what has just happened. Is Syria and Israel has reached down to King Ahaz and said, join this, join this confederacy so that we can go up against Assyria. And Ahaz says no. So now Syria and Israel are threatening to come down and invade Judah. And that's what it talks about in the beginning of chapter 6. I'm sorry, chapter 7. And Isaiah tells him, listen, don't be afraid of those two kings. Don't be afraid of the king of Israel and the king of Syria. Their plan to destroy you will not come to pass. And then Isaiah says this, if you do not believe God's word, your kingdom will not be established. Now, just in order to help King Isaiah know that God's word was true, Isaiah tells Ahaz, you need to ask God for a sign. Ask God for a sign that the king of Israel and the king of Syria will not defeat you. And Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. And he does so for a quote-unquote religious purpose. Oh, I don't want to tempt the Lord. But really, he didn't believe. He says, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And Isaiah says, fine, God's going to give you a sign anyway. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. So think about this with me. Okay, I'm going to do a little visual here. Okay, here's the present moment. And here is the king of Syria and the king of Israel coming to invade. And then here's much later in the future. Okay, Isaiah told King Ahaz, you need to ask God for a sign that this will not defeat you that king, the king of Israel and that the king of Syria will be defeated. And he says, no, I'm not going to ask a sign for that. So then Isaiah says, fine, I'll give you a sign in the future. God will give you a sign in the future. That a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel, and you'll name, uh, you'll name him God is with us. And he says, here's your sign now. When you see that these two kings are defeated like God told you they would, then you will know that this sign is also going to come to true. So first he was saying, ask for a sign here to prove this, but now he's saying, I'm going to use this to prove that. Okay? Make sense? Good. All right. In this prophecy of the child, God is offering two things. Okay? 
First of all, he is offering condemnation to Ahaz because he's telling Ahaz, if God is with us, then why are you afraid of Syria and Israel? If God is with us, then why are you afraid of them? And yet, what does Ahaz do? He reaches out to Assyria to rescue them instead of relying on God. But then the second one is a comfort to the remnant because the remnant would have to know as long as this messianic king is coming, we could never be fully destroyed. Judah can never be fully destroyed as long as this promise is still in effect because if we are fully destroyed, then this promise is gone. So it would be a condemnation to Ahaz, but it would also be a comfort to the remnant. Now, because Ahaz did not believe God's word, Isaiah then says, guess what? When Assyria comes through and he does what you want it to do and he takes care of Syria and Israel, right after that, he's going to come after you and he's going to bring punishment upon you. And in chapter 8, God shows how Assyria would conquer Syria and Israel, but then he's going to come against Judah because of Ahaz's unbelief. And Isaiah and his wife have a son, and they name him Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which means haste the prey, speed the spoil. And God says, before that child can say mommy and daddy, you are going to see Syria and Israel defeated by Assyria. But then Assyria is going to come against Judah, and he says he's going to reach up to the neck. Now, what is the head of Judah? Jerusalem. He says he's going to reach up to the neck. He's going to come right to the wall of Jerusalem, but he won't be able to go any further. And this is what he says. The stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. You know what Isaiah was saying? Assyria is going to cause great damage, but he will never be able to destroy Emmanuel's land. What can any nation do against Jerusalem while God is with us? And church, all hell may be raised against us, but the gates of hell will not prevail. If God be for us, who can be against us? And he warns them. He says, when you see Assyria coming near, you're going to have a choice. You will either rely on God and have light, or you're going to rely on man and have darkness. And Isaiah, being a prophet, says, many of you are going to rely on man, and it's going to bring you into darkness. Yet, chapter 9 gives a glimmer of hope. And as it always is with God, even in his wrath and punishment is mercy. And even though Judah will suffer great trouble, one day God is going to bring them great joy like when a man harvests his field or uh, when victory is won in battle. And this joy is going to come through the child that was promised in chapter 7. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. You will have a king, and he will reign over you. His name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the everlasting Father, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. And he will rule with perfect justice and bring everlasting peace, not just to you, but to all nations. Now, although this king is going to come from Judah, it also stretched, this promise stretched into Israel, but Israel wanted nothing to do with it. They rejected every single invitation. They ignored every punishment. They bypassed and every divine obstacle. They just found a way around it. They remained as prideful as can be. And the first four verses of chapter 10, God tells of Israel's inevitable destruction by Assyria. He says, your wickedness has gone too far. Your alliances aren't going to mean anything when Assyria comes without my help. God says, you are going to be brought down. 
But then in verse 5 through 19 of chapter 10, God addresses Assyria. And he says, yes, God is using Assyria to punish his people, but Assyria refused to believe that they were just an instrument in God's hand. They refused to believe that. They instead attributed all their might and their wealth to their own abilities. They thought that all of their victories was because of their skills. And God says, because of your pride, after I use you to punish my people, I'm going to punish you says, just like I am going to let the Assyrians be like a fire that comes and purges my people, after that, they're going to be consumed by that same fire. And therefore, in verse 20 through 34 of chapter 10, God again gives comfort to the remnant of Judah. Assyria can do its worst. But when it's all said and done, Assyria is going to be completely destroyed and Judah will still be standing. Assyria is going to come close. He names all of these cities that are surrounding Jerusalem and how they're falling left and right. But he comes up to Jerusalem and they stop and they can't go any further. And if you want to have just a little homework assignment, read Isaiah verse thir uh, chapter 36 through 38 and that perfectly comes true. But with this message of imminent judgment, Assyria is going to come to Israel and Judah, and then, or Israel, and then he's going to come to Judah. Chapter 11 again turns the remnant's eyes to God's ultimate goal. He gives another prophecy of this coming king. Are you noticing some repetition here? And there's a reason for this, okay? The people in Israel and Judah, are, the Bible says, were dull of hearing. And God's word to them had to be precept upon precept and precept upon precept and line upon line and line upon line. He had a, this is what's going to happen, and then this is what's going to happen. And then he seriously had to talk to them like babies because they were so far away from him. So all this repetition is not boring. It's to pound it into their mind. This is what's going to happen if you keep going. This king, I love how chapter 11 refers to the king as a branch from the house of Jesse. You know what he's saying? He is going to be a son of David. He's a branch from the tree, the family tree of David. He's going to be a son of David, and he's going to rule with justice and righteousness, and this is going to bring complete peace to the land. But then in verse 10, he also calls him the root of Jesse. So this king is going to be a son of David, a branch from the house of Jesse, but he's also the root of Jesse. So he's not only the son of David, he's the Lord of David at the same time. A branch made him the king of Israel. A root makes him the Lord of all, the Lord of all nations. You can whisper hallelujah just, just a little bit, okay? That's an exciting thing, right? So just me and Brother Lewis and Brother Steve, anybody else? Jesus is a son of David. He came as a man, but he's the root of Jesse. He is also God. And that is how he is able to be the perfect king. And he's going to gather his people from the four corners of the earth. That's you and me, by the way. He's going to gather his people from the four corners of the earth. He's going to conquer all the wickedness of the heathen nations and all nations will be under his ensign. And in that day, Isaiah says, chapter 12 states that the people of all nations will understand how even God's punishment was only meant to bring their ultimate salvation. All nations will understand that.
in that day. We are still waiting for that day. That day has not come. And this is why our great commission is to do what? Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Because that is God's ultimate goal. We are commanded to watch for that day. But what does the Bible teach? The best way to watch is to work. Occupy till I come. Tell other people that Emmanuel has come and that he's coming again. That is what we're supposed to do. Go forward with the gospel. Prepare as many people as we can for the reign of the king of kings. That is our job. Prepare as many people as you can. Hey, 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 hey. Including yourself. Now this is going to be our application here and I'm done. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we shall, uh, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in himself purifieth himself, even as he is pure. What is God bringing all this punishment for? To purify his people. Because he is coming again. And it doesn't matter how good the king is if the people are wrong. And that's why we're supposed to go and teach all nations. And that is why we must purify ourselves. Now write these three things down. How, do, how does this purification come? First of all, the covering blood of Jesus. That is how purification comes. The covering blood of Jesus, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, and uh, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you saved tonight? You have no hope of cleansing without the blood of Christ. Number two, how does this purification come? The chastening hand of God. One is the covering blood of Jesus. The next one is the chastening hand of God. Hebrews 12, 11 says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Proverbs 3, 11 says, Despise not the chastening of the Lord. Neither be weary of his correction, for whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. God loves you so much that he'll save you just as you are, but he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to stay that way. He wants you to grow closer to him. He wants you to grow in what is right. He wants you to grow in right. And many times he shows us how to grow in right by getting us to know what's wrong. How does he do that? Well, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that's what is right. For, for reproof, that is what is wrong. For correction, that's how to get right. And for instruction in righteousness, that's how to stay right. That's the last one, number three. The cleansing word of God. Where does purification come from? The covering blood of Jesus, the chastening hand of God, and the cleansing word of God. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Do not tell me that you're ready for Christ to reign on earth if you won't even read his word. That doesn't work. I can tell you the story of a friend. A man I spent a lot of time with in college. Who became a youth pastor. And completely messed up his life. He destroyed his family. 
He destroyed his children. He destroyed his youth group. And his sister asked him at one point, how did you go from being one of the leaders in Bible college to a youth pastor to stooping so low in sin? She said, when's the last time you've read your Bible? And he said, I haven't read my Bible in well over two years. Or a year, he said, I haven't read my Bible in over a year. Church, the devil doesn't take long. It doesn't take long to take us down when we don't hear and obey and teach God's word. How are you supposed to fight against the devil without your sword? No wonder the church is always playing defense. Where's our sword? No wonder believers are so unholy. Where's our sword? So how can I apply this today? Do you love God's word? Just to think practically here, how many times have we come to Isaiah and just read through it and read through it and read through it and thought it's too deep, it's too much, I'm just not gonna, I'm just not gonna learn about it. God's word is an ocean that deserves to be explored. And no, it's not just gonna happen in, in five minutes in the morning. Cleansing doesn't just come with a quick five-second shower in the morning. I knew guys in Bible college that wouldn't brush their teeth, they would just pop gum in their mouth. In church, not to be crude, but if the only time that you read your Bible is when, ping, something comes up on your phone, here's your verse of the day, you will not be clean. You will not be sharp. We live in a dulling world. We live in a dirty world, in a filthy world, and on top of all of that, you have a filthy mind and a filthy heart and filthy hands. And where are we going to find cleansing if we just, like a little spritz? I want this to be all over me and through me and in me. God, help me. I'm 29 years old and I don't even know what Isaiah is about. God, help us. When I get to heaven, I want to be able to talk to God about things. I have a lot of questions. Why did you do what you did to Ezekiel? The poor man, why are there mosquitoes? I appreciate the fact that spiders didn't have wings, but why do cockroaches have wings? Lord, why? But you know what we're going to ask? The Bible says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. You know what we'll be able to do? Lord, can you explain to me Isaiah 53? Can you explain to me, and we're going to be able to go through God's word for all of eternity. I want to, I want to know it now. This is where your heart will be cleansed. And we don't love it the way that we should. And church, if there is one nail that I'm going to hammer into your heart for as long as you allow me to pastor here, it's get to know your Bible. Get to love your Bible. I could die tonight. I could die tomorrow. Brother Rusty could die tomorrow. Brother Mark could die tomorrow. All these men in the church could die tomorrow. And what, what if the Bible were completely removed from us like it has been in some countries? How much of it would you have in your heart? If the Bible was completely gone and it was our job as a church to rewrite it by what is in our heart, how much of the Bible would we be able to spare? Get to know your Bible. 
Read it every day. Study it every day. Love it more today than you did yesterday. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.